0: Well, hey everyone, I want to welcome you to Ignite Church. Really glad that you could be here with us this morning. Uh, We are in a series going through the Gospel of Matthew. And you might be asking, the whole thing? You better know it. We're going through the whole Gospel of Matthew, all 28 chapters. We're not going to leave a stone unturned. And the reason we're doing this is because we fundamentally believe that all scripture, all 66 books, Old Testament, New Testament alike, is breathed out, inspired by God. It's God's timeless, eternal word to us. Even though it wasn't written to us necessarily, it's written for our good and for our benefit. And so we see no better way spending the next, don't mean to scare you away, a couple of years uh, going through the Gospel of Matthew, looking at our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, why it is good news. That he came to earth. Uh, The Gospel of Matthew, the word gospel literally means good news. So when we talk about the Gospel of Matthew, we're really saying the good news according to Matthew's perspective. Matthew was one of the 12 close followers of Jesus. And he decided to write down and record the major themes and the major activities, the major ministry points of Jesus' life to be passed down, preserved, so that you and I today, thousands of years later, can open the Word of God, open Matthew's account, and see why this coming Messiah, this Jesus, is, is good news for you and for me. Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen time and time again, throughout the first two chapters of Matthew, that Jesus came as the fulfillment of hundreds of years of prophecy, right? The entire Old Testament points to and looks forward to this coming Jesus, this Messiah, the Christ, the Deliverer, the Anointed King is literally what that means. And if you view these different prophecies, the prophecies of maybe Hosea and Jeremiah and Isaiah, a few that we looked at last week, um, we really see that this Messiah Jesus had to be orchestrated by God Himself. There's no other explanation for the ordering and restructuring of human history so that this Jesus would come to fulfill all these prophecies in the fullness of time when He did and how He did it. Right? And so we've been looking forward to the coming of Jesus. And today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3. And if we looked, the last few weeks, we looked at how. Uh, these prophecies are kind of like mile markers, right? If we're traveling from Minnesota across the North Dakota border, we can count down the mile markers from I-94. And once we get to mile marker number one, what does that mean? We're, we're pretty much arrived. We're about to cross over in North Dakota. Today, we're really like at mile marker number one. Okay, we're going to be introduced to this figure named John the Baptist. John the Baptist, and you'll find out he's a pretty strange fellow, um, but he has a lot to teach us about how we relate to Jesus, uh, what we are to tell people of this coming Jesus, who he is, what he's doing, John the Baptist is the forerunner. In Matthew 3, we see that John the Baptist is the forerunner for this Messiah. He prepares the way for Jesus to come and do what only Jesus can do. And by way of illustration, maybe I could give you a couple ways to to think about this John the Baptist figure uh, as a forerunner. Um, any concert goers in here, any music, fans, um, when you pay for your ticket, right, obscene amounts of money uh, to see your favorite band, what comes before your favorite band that night? The opening act, right, the opening act. You don't pay to see the opening act, but the opening act's really, really important, right? It gets you, gets you moving a little bit, gets you, gets you ready for the main event. In a lot of ways, John the Baptist is like this opening act, Right? We didn't come to see John the Baptist. We came to see Jesus. Yet John the Baptist paved the way. John the Baptist was the forerunner. He came before and announced the coming of Jesus, the person who human history waited and expects and longs to see. Or maybe by way of personal illustration, I married into a farming family. I've known this family for the better part of six years now. You might be thinking, well, oh, by now you probably know a great deal about farming. no. Uh. It's not really the case. I ask a lot of questions. I do a lot of head nodding and a lot of just like, whoa. Like farming's really complex, right? Farming's really complex. Misguidingly, you might think that in the winter when everything's dead and frozen and cold and desolate, that the farmers don't do anything. How many of you know that's not true? That's not true because even in the winter when they're not able to be in the field, I'm learning that farmers are constantly tweaking and preparing their equipment they're, they're balancing their books, they're, they're looking at what seed we're going to plant where and who's going to get us the best price, what's going to get us the best return and all this crazy stuff to prepare for what? To prepare for springtime, what's the main event in the spring in the life of a farmer? Seeding season. That's what they prepare for. All this vital work, they'll even sometimes till the ground and plow the ground to get the ground ready for, for seeding. They need to get the seed in the ground. Really, similarly, John the Baptist is like all this prep work, right? Preparing for the main event, preparing for what we're looking forward to. We got to get the seed in the ground. And John the Baptist is saying, look, uh, in a sense, spring is coming. The main event is coming. Jesus is on his way, and I'm going to prepare your hearts like a farmer does. Prepare the soil for the seed, John the Baptist prepares the hearts of the people to receive the good news of the kingdom of God. Does that does that make sense? So as we look at John the Baptist, we look at him and say, this is not the Messiah. This is not Jesus. But he's an important piece. Mile marker number one in the coming Jesus, Messiah. And this is really good news. So if you have your Bibles open with me to Matthew chapter 3, here's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to read the first 12 verses together, uh, and then we're going to go back and going to go back and uh, dissect it together. Here's the big idea if you're taking notes. Receiving Jesus demands a repentant heart. Receiving Jesus demands a repentant heart. These 12 verses in Matthew chapter 3 are really a record of John the Baptist's message. John the Baptist came preaching proclaiming a message, and central to this message you're going to see repeated three times actually in these 12 verses is this theme of repentance. And if we were to summarize John the Baptist's message, we're going to summarize the big idea today, it's receiving Jesus, the Messiah demands a repentant heart. So would you read with me chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, there's our word. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That's a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Verse 4, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Dude's a hipster. That's really what's going on here. Verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized, literally immersed by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham." Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Receiving Jesus demands a repentant heart. If you look back with me at, at verse 1, chapter 3, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. Between chapters 2 and 3 of Matthew is about three decades of, of silence. Um... Jesus was, was raised in Nazareth. He likely would have been uh, taking the trade of his father Joseph and preparing. We know from Luke chapter 2, verse 52, that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. But there's this kind of three-decade gap where we don't know much about what is happening in the life of this Messiah, this, this Jesus. And so Matthew says, in, in those days... That means 30 years after the events of Matthew chapter 2. John the Baptist, this figure, came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Here's his message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Two words I want to focus on, repent. Right, this is a churchy term. Uh, You don't really use this often unless you're maybe in a small group or gathered with the church on a Sunday. It's just not a common word for us. It's rooted in this Old Testament uh, Hebrew concept uh, which literally means to turn around. The word repent, the Hebrew word shuv, means to turn or return to something. Right? So if you're in conversation with someone and someone behind you says, hey, shuv, over here, uh, and you turn to look at that person, you're shuving. You're literally repenting. Sometimes throughout the Bible, it uh, connotates this physical action of turning around, right? Shuv, over here, turn around. Um, most of the time, though' it's, uh, it's something communicating a spiritual reality. It's often tied with this message of, of sin, right we, God calls His people constantly throughout the Old Testament to repent, to turn from their sin, and then return to God. repentance and we see that repentance is actually this very dynamic, multifaceted word. It's not, not that simple. Um, repentance permeates and should affect every area of our life and every aspect of our being. I could say it this way. Repentance includes a change or a turning of your head, of your heart, and of your hands. Your head, what you think about, should turn around your thoughts. Uh, your, your heart your motives, your desires, your affections, your emotions, what you value, repentance should fundamentally turn those things from sin. And then our hands, what we do, it concerns our actions. If we repent, if we turn from our sin and turn to God, but doesn't affect our actions and affect what we do, then that's not true repentance. It involves this changing of our head, of our heart, And of our hands. that's what John the Baptist is saying. He's saying, repent. Turn from your sin. Turn to the coming Messiah. Why should we repent? He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Second term we want to look at. The kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. Again, very... uh, Rich Old Testament imagery going on here. The kingdom of heaven, if a Jew would have heard that term, they would have thought immediately back to the Davidic era, the King, king David. Um, he ruled in Jerusalem. It was like the golden era of Israel's history. And David was, the, David was the man. He was the king. He was a man after God's own heart. And we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7... That from this physical man, David, a future king would come and would establish David's kingly rule for all of eternity. This is what we call the messianic hope of the entire Old Testament. This idea that a royal kingly figure would come in the line of David, usher in the kingdom of God and rule and reign for all of eternity. This is what the Jews looked forward to. So when John the Baptist came out saying, repent, turn around, turn back to God, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's announcing the coming Messiah. John the Baptist is saying, look, there is a king, he is coming, prepare yourselves. Prepare yourselves. The king is coming. So his message is one of repentance. Then we jump down, we read in verse Five, what John was doing. He wasn't just saying stuff, he was calling people to action. And in verse 5 it says, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to John the Baptist. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So it was a message of repentance. Turn around. Turn back to God. And this repentance... Was symbolized by baptism. Word baptism literally means to immerse, often in water. And so John the Baptist, droves of people were coming to him all throughout the known Palestinian era uh, area, and, and he was baptizing them in the Jordan River one by one. Just baptizing. Here's the weird thing that's going on, though. Jews did not get baptized. Like, baptism in water was not a Jewish thing. Jews did not get baptized. Here's what baptism was in the Old Testament in the Jewish uh, religion. If there was a Gentile, that's a non-Jew, that said, I want to convert to Judaism and follow the ways of God, then one thing the Jews would do is they would baptize these non-Jewish converts as a way of ritually purifying and cleansing them. Here's to simplify this. Baptism was for non-Jews. It was for Gentiles. Baptism was not for Jews. Yet droves of people all about in the country were coming to this locust-eating, cloak-wearing, weird, yelling guy saying, the kingdom is here. Be baptized and repent. Like this is a really offensive message. He's telling Jews, you need to be baptized. It's his way of saying, you're no cleaner in the sight of God than the non-Jews. This is John the Baptist's offensive message. He's the guy that doesn't get invited to the parties. He's super unpopular because he's preaching a really offensive message. Yet, people were coming out in droves to repent and be baptized. Why? Why were people doing this? Here's what I think going on. Because John the Baptist's message was not about himself, it was about look, the Savior of the world, the man whom you've been waiting for for hundreds, thousands of years, he's here. We're at mile marker number one. He says, This is good news. All of human history is pointed to the coming one. He's coming right after me. His name is Jesus. So people were repenting, preparing themselves. They were taking John at his word. They were being baptized. They were being cleansed from their sin. Why? Because something greater is here. The king is coming. Jesus has arrived in human history. Here's what I think this passage is calling us as the church today, 2,000 years later, to do. I believe we can learn from John the Baptist in that our responsibility is to announce the good news of Christ's coming and leave the results up to the working of the Holy Spirit in people's hearts. It wasn't John the Baptist coercing them, reasoning with them, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, this is who he is, and, and fulfilling all these prophecies and reasoning, like... John the Baptist was very simply saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, turn around, Jesus is coming. And people responded. People responded to the offensive message. There's a work in their heart going on here. Church, if I can encourage you in one area, our responsibility is to share the good news of Christ's coming for all people. We leave the results, the responsibility... Uh, on, the, on the person and on, on God himself. I found that the gospel takes root in the most unlikely of places, in the most unlikely of circumstances, in the rockiest of situations. The gospel transcends all of that. Jesus has power over all of those things. That person, that loved one, that family member in your life who you've been praying urgently for them to come to Jesus. You're faithfully sharing the gospel with them. You're showing them what it looks like to, to love and be a friend. And you feel like there's no hope. Church, I need to encourage you. There's hope because we're talking about Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Man, don't lose hope. Keep sharing the good news of Jesus' coming. The gospel takes root in the most unlikely of circumstances. The gospel saves the most unlikely of people. Can anyone attest to that? I shouldn't be saved. I shouldn't be where I am today. It's but the grace of God has brought me to where I am. And so we learn from John the Baptist, share the message. Jesus is here and this is good news. We leave the results to God. You'll be surprised what God does in the hearts of the people whom you're close with. This is John the Baptist's message and then we pick up in verse 7, but, okay, here's a contradiction or a little interjection. Everything's going really well, right? Little quick, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they show up. We know the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're always spoiling the party, right? They're, they're always always doing something to shake things up a little bit. Verse 7, but when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Not a friendly greeting, by the way. This isn't a coffee mug Bible verse, right? We're not sipping from a coffee mug screen-printed brood of vipers, right? This is an offensive address. This is offensive. John the Baptist likes to offend people, by the way. I don't don't know what's going on, but verse 7, he calls the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of his day the Jewish religious elite, the scholars, the people that followed the law meticulously and to a T. says, you guys are nothing but a group of poisonous snakes. Here's what John the Baptist is saying. He's discerning the hearts and the motives and the teachings and the intentions of these religious leaders. And he says, you should, you should look out. You should look out for their message and their teaching because their teaching, what they're teaching the people, the common people of the day is actually poisonous. It's toxic. It's spiritually deadly. They were teaching very briefly, uh, they were teaching a form of works righteousness. Meaning if I do enough, if I try hard, if I do better, if I just sacrifice one more animal, if I just pray one more time, then God's going to be pleased with me. And John the Baptist says that's a poisonous teaching because you're never going to be right with God from what you can do. It's about what someone else has to do for you. So he says, you're, you're a brood of vipers. And then in verse 8, he continues encouraging and rebuking these religious leaders. He says, you need to bear fruit in keeping with, there's our word, repentance, repentance, And by the way, don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. This is like the trump card of Judaism, by the way. Right, saying, I'm physically descended from Abraham. Read about Abraham in Genesis 12, like 12th page of the Bible. Abraham's the father of the Jewish people. And he's amazing. Right, we look to Abraham as this great example of faith, but the religious leaders of the day were saying, I'm already good because look at my pedigree. I have Abraham as my father. He's got me. And he says, look, that's, that's a toxic way of viewing your relationship with God. Here's the underlying principle. Here's what John the Baptist is really drilling into the hearts of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And dare I say, he's speaking to you and me today because we act very Pharisaical sometimes as followers of Jesus. John the Baptist is saying this. There is a deep-rooted pride in every one of our hearts. Pride. Pride saying, I can do this on my own. It's about what I can do for myself. That's going to make me right with God. It's this pride. A few things that the Pharisees and Sadducees were saying and doing, they're saying, look, I'm already cleansed. There's no need for me to be baptized. Right? Droves of people saying, Jews, like saying, I need to be baptized. I need to repent. The Pharisees were saying, "Yeah, you common folk might need to. I don't need to. I'm already clean, right? I'm a good Jew. I I pray. I pray the Shema, Deuteronomy six, verse four. I pray that day and night. I keep clean. I abstain from certain foods and people. I don't need to be cleansed. It's prideful. They're saying this. Uh, I don't need to repent because I'm already fruitful." Right, John says, no, you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's active, by the way. It's not a one-time thing. It's, our lives are to be marked by this repentance, this constant turning from sin and turning to God. And then, of course, the Jewish religious leaders are saying, look, I'm already in. Do you see who my dad is? It's Abraham. I've descended from Abraham. And John the Baptist says, hmm. hold up there because... God is able to take from these rocks something that is lifeless and nothing and make them children of Abraham. John the Baptist is wiping out any grounds for pride that we could possibly have. Here's what I found in my own life Pride often says, I've arrived. Pride says, I've done enough. Now I can coast. Is anyone with me? Right, I, I've done enough. I'm good. But that's not the Christian life. That's not the Christian walk. That's why we can read in Philippians chapter 3 where Paul says, by the way, Paul is like Abraham for the Christians. Is that a fair thing to say? I don't know. But Paul Paul's the man. Like he is the theologian par none. I mean the guy is remarkable. A remarkable apostle. Wrote a lot of the New Testament. And Paul in Philippians 3 says, "Not that I've already obtained this excellence, but I press on toward the goal. I strive toward the goal. I press on. I haven't already achieved anything." He says, I press on to make this faith in Jesus my own. Why? Because Jesus Christ had made me his own. We don't work for our salvation, we work from it. We don't work for grace, we work from it. We don't work for Jesus to make us righteous, we work from the fact that Jesus has made us righteous by faith in him. We press on. There's no such thing as arriving this side of eternity. Church, don't get lazy. Don't get apathetic. Don't view church and life group attendances, look, I've checked it off. I'm good now. I can make it till next week. That's not living life abundantly that Jesus came to give us. We press on. Paul says elsewhere, I've worked harder than the rest of them. Yet not I, but Christ within me. It's this paradox. We press on. We strive toward the goal. We never say we've arrived. We say, I'm a work in progress. There's a lot of sin that I still need to repent of. I press on because of what Christ has done for me. And in verse 10, John the Baptist says, This Messiah who is coming, he's going to cut down those who have this prideful attitude of, I've already arrived. So we see that receiving Jesus demands a repentant heart. It's this life marked by repentance. We bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If I can just say this really quick. um, One way that I love to bear fruit in keeping with repentance just daily, um, I like to make Psalm 51 a regular practice. Just reading through Psalm 51. I like to do that uh, often throughout the day. Psalm 51. It's the psalm where, where David, after committing the terrible sin with Bathsheba, this adulterous affair, letting down the entire nation of Israel, letting down himself, letting down his family, and of course, breaking God's heart, breaking God's law. And Psalm 51 is this beautiful prayer of repentance. Literally, David saying, God, I've sinned against you. I need to turn. Would you restore my heart? Just want to give that to you. Psalm 51 is a great psalm of repentance that we can pray. With that being said, um, Let's look at the last two verses of John chapter, excuse me, Matthew chapter 3. We see the humility of John the Baptist. Verse 11, he says, I immerse you, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he, circle the word he in your Bible, that's talking about Jesus, the coming Messiah. He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He'll baptize you with the spirit and with fire. He has a winnowing fork in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his weed into the barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist now exclusively shifts the focus off of him. If we had any reason to look to John the Baptist and say, man, this guy's awesome. He says, don't do that. He says, it's all about Jesus. He said, it's all about the Messiah. I'm just the forerunner. I'm just mile marker number one. You haven't gotten to Fargo yet. (laughs) Said no one ever. Um, John the Baptist tells us two things about this coming king, about this Messiah. He says, Jesus is the king and Jesus is the judge. Verse 11, Jesus is the king. John the Baptist takes the right position before this coming king. He says, this this Messiah is mightier than I. He said, if you think I have a strong message, you haven't seen anything yet. He's mightier than I. And he says, actually, his dirty, gross, filthy sandals, yeah, I'm not even worthy to touch those. That's how amazing this Messiah is. He says, Jesus is the king. This Messiah is the king. And then he says, this Messiah is going to be a judge. He's a judge. Let's read verse 12 again. Jesus has a winnowing fork in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What John the Baptist is doing here is he's using this agricultural metaphor or analogy. A winnowing fork was a tool used in Old Testament agriculture, and a threshing floor was this large, flat plain, oftentimes in a valley. So it's like North Dakota, basically. It's, it's flat in a valley. Seriously, though. And, and what would happen is the wind would circulate and come into this valley. And so the farmer with his winnowing fork would take the wheat that he harvested, throw it up in the air. The heavy, good wheat would fall to the ground. The chaff, the useless stuff stuff you don't eat or use, gets blown away. It's a separation of the wheat from the chaff, the good from the bad, the useless from the useful. And so what would happen is the good wheat would fall to the ground, the wind would carry the chaff away, and oftentimes the chaff would then be collected and burned. And John the Baptist is using this analogy to say Jesus is coming as a judge. He says, you and me, we're either going to be wheat or we're going to be chaff. And what determines our end is how we respond to Jesus. I need you to catch this. What determines our end It's based on how we respond to Jesus. The repentant, the ones who humbly say, I turn from my sin and trust in Jesus the Messiah... They're like the good wheat. There's substance there. It falls to the ground. It's collected and put to good use. It's preserved. Those who don't repent, those who see Jesus and harden their hearts, those who see Jesus and say, I'm good. I've arrived. I can save myself. They're going to be like, like chaff. Blown away. Burned. This is a hard truth, but it's a biblical truth. I want to speak to you because I love you and care for you, care about where you're going, care about your eternity. How you respond to Jesus determines your eternity. Will you respond to Jesus? The Messiah's come, by the way. Will you look to Jesus and say, I'm sinful, I have pride, I need to repent and trust in him? If so, man, you have an eternity reconciled to the Father, free from sin ahead of you. Those who hear the gospel, the message I'm sharing today, if you respond by hardening your heart, friend, eternal separation from your loving Father awaits you. And so at this point, you might be asking, and I close with this, you might be asking, why is it even good news at all that Jesus, as a judge, came into the world? Like, I already feel shameful enough, I already feel guilty enough, I already feel unqualified enough, why do I need some other rabbi telling me That I'm guilty before a holy God. Why is that good news? And let me tell you this. You're asking the question at the crux of the gospel. What makes the gospel good news is the cosmic reality that God is a righteous judge. And he will call every deed on an individual basis into account. And he will judge it with equity. And the Father, we read in John chapter 5, has handed all judgment over to the Son. Jesus has come once as the Messiah, and He's coming again to establish His kingdom and be the judge of all humanity. And for those who repent and place their faith in Jesus today, this is the gospel. You need to catch it. Jesus is not only our judge, but He becomes the defender of the repentant. Jesus is the judge and the defender of the repentant. So it's good news that Jesus came into the world because he's not only a judge, but he provides the way of salvation for all who place their faith in him. Jesus lived a perfect life under the law. He's blameless. Jesus at the cross died a substitutionary death that you and I, because of our sin, deserve to die. But then Jesus, being sinless in every way, rose from the grave to give new life to all who will place their faith in him. That's the good news of, of Jesus. So when John the Baptist talks about, look, there's a Messiah coming, that's what we look forward to. Jesus is a judge, yes, but... Man, he's the defender of the repentant, he's the defender of the righteous. So I want to ask you this, where is that sin you need to repent of in your hearts and in your life? Maybe some of you today have rejected Jesus as the king and as the Messiah of your life. I want to say this, as we pray in a moment, would you simply repent? Say, I turn from my selfishness, I turn from my pride, my sin, and I place my trust in Jesus. Friend, when you do that, Jesus not only is our judge, but He becomes your defender and your advocate. He gives you His righteousness. And you have eternity ahead with your Father awaiting. Would you pray with me?